reading today is from Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 3 through 14. Philippians 3, 3 through 14. It begins with the word for. Paul's been discussing other things, but we'll leave those other things out for the morning so we can get on to what he really does want to say. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered all things, excuse me, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is our gospel reading for the day. Let us pray. Father, there are tremendous things in your word, tremendous things for us to hear and to know. And we pray that as we consider these things, that you would be with us to encourage, to strengthen, and to lead us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be back with you this morning. Uh, depending on how you count it, it's about a half, of, a half a year, or you can say it's four months and a few weeks. Um, I'm going to go for half a year. We were with you in June this uh, summer, and uh, it's great to be here. We were here right after Synod, so we hadn't even been home yet. When, now we've been back home and been a variety of places. And, and here it is now, October, and we're back. Whew. And we're staying at the same RV place, and some, some of you know that we're, we're not full-time RVers, but we spend a lot of time in our RV, and every RV experience we have is a new and amazing thing that we've never had before. So last night we pulled in, we got here early, which was a good thing, because we were thinking it'll be a quiet Saturday night, the crawfish festival is over, right? That was like last week. Oh, I missed it. Okay, so I'm thinking this is going to be... It's, it, and they said, we only have one spot left. And that's when I reserved like two months ago. Right? I said, it's possible. We pull in. That place, you couldn't walk. 
There were everybody. I think every child in the parish was there. And they said, we're closing the road in a few minutes. You've got to get in and get parked because every kid in the neighborhood is here to go trick-or-treating. I had to run to the grocery store and buy a bunch of trick-or-treat treats so we could give them. They cleaned us out in 23 minutes and continued to come for the next half hour. And then, and here's the point of the story, and then the people next to us said, we have so much food left over, we'd like to share with you. And they gave us bowls full of something that had rice, beans, and at least two kinds of meat, maybe three. I always feel like I should be here when we come here. It is such a pleasure and a joy to be with everybody in your community. It's just spectacular. So moving on now to our our scripture, I specifically ask your session to be here with you on this Sabbath and next Because it's the end of October, and the end of October has a date that is very important to all Protestant Christians. On October the 31st, 1517, All Hallows' Eve, some 508 years ago, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, went to the door of the chapel at Wittenberg Castle, and he nailed a scholarly document to the door good scholarly fashion, inviting folks to a public debate about some of the doctrines of the medieval church. And assuming that you know all about this, and so it's very interesting to me that public debates were the popular form of entertainment in those days. You went to church, to the castle, wherever it was that they were holding it, to hear a public debate on theology. A little bit different now these days. And we know this document that Luther nailed up there is the 95 Theses. And little did he know when he nailed that document up there the firestorm that he had just lit. The Reformation began just there And it quickly swelled out of that little university town all across what we know today as Germany and Scandinavia, the Low Countries, Holland, France, England, Scotland, and from there all over the globe. And there are many groups of Christians who are descended from those Reformation forebears. Some of those groups bear the name Presbyterian. One particular group is the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, members of which you are. How's that for a grammatical statement, huh? That you're members of the ARP Church. Our official organization as a denomination was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Who could imagine? In 1782, as the Reformed Presbyterians, or at least most of them, and the Associate Presbyterians, or at least most of them, got together and merged into one church. A few from each side didn't go into the merger, and so you still have the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. The APs all eventually merged into somebody. They had come from Scotland, and they had come from Ireland, and they discovered that while in the old country they had things that kept them apart, 
And in fact, not only that, but the APs and RPs were divided into multiple groups in Scotland over whether you could uh, swear allegiance to the king, and uh, it goes on and on. When they got to America, they didn't need any of those kinds of divisions because we didn't have a king. In 1782, ought to be familiar to you, it's the very end of the American Revolutionary War, and all of the things from the old country were swept away. Instead... What those folks found was that they had an awful lot in common. And the things that they had in common were what we know as the Westminster Standards. That is to say, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the longer and the shorter catechism, the directory for worship, and a few other documents that are subsidiary to that. Those are really long especially for people today who watch TikTok videos that are only about 45 seconds long. And so rather than trying to talk about everything that is in the Westminster Standards, there is a shorter summary that has become popular in the last few years of the Reformed faith, and it's called the Five Solas of the Reformation. Now, I was going to ask the question, are you familiar with them? But then in Sunday school, we had them presented to us at the end of class. So I know you heard them just a few minutes ago. So I don't have to ask if you've heard that phrase. You know already. But now, when I was a young person growing up in the ARP church, I never heard of the five solas of the Reformation. We didn't talk about that. I couldn't have told you what they were. They were not an issue. But when I was a civilian pastor, I was living in New York City, one week I had to go down to Philadelphia to um, an event. Don't ask me what the event was. I don't remember. What I do remember was a friend of mine was pastor of this gigantic church in West Philadelphia. Huge stone, big building, seats 700 people on the inside with a choir loft about that big right there and this huge pink and purple pipe organ. It had been painted in the 60s. Okay. (laughs) But in this huge gray stone church, on the outside of the building, there were these great big tall arches, maybe as big as the, the... what do we call the top of the building here? The, the peak, maybe about, maybe about that tall. Huge building. And he had these gigantic banners that he had put up there. And one of them said, Christ alone. And one of them said, by faith alone. And one of them said, by grace alone. And one of them said, to the glory of God alone. There's got to be another one. Oh, yeah, scripture alone. I preached on that the last time I was here. So he had all that there, and that was the first time that I had ever seen or met these five solas of the Reformation. Now, one reason that I hadn't heard about these solas before was that while the idea is biblical, while the, uh, the Reformation folks all believed them, the exact expression only came about in the 1960s. We couldn't be talking about it when I was a kid because I was already a kid when somebody wrote a book and said, here's the five solas. It took a while for people to, to get out and grab hold of that, that handy summary of the Reformation eras. Nowadays, you can find the five solas anywhere. We talked about it in Sunday school. If you go on your handy-dandy Ligonier website, poof, there you'll have all kinds of writings on the five solas. If you go to the Gospel Coalition site, you get a page that that seemed to go on forever with uh, speeches and sermons and writings and all kinds of things all about the five solas. 
But you didn't have that when I was growing up. And maybe you didn't have it when you were growing up either. And maybe that expression doesn't mean a lot to you. But if we're going to talk about the Reformation, and we're going to talk about the beliefs of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, this little summary, Scripture alone, Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, it's a pretty handy summary of the things that we believe. And they're important. Not only are they accurate, and we're going to talk about the accuracy of them in the moment, but the fact is there are a lot of people who reject this little summary. There are people who may argue against Scripture. There are people who will argue against Scripture alone, even if they like Scripture. There are plenty of people who reject the idea of justification by faith alone, probably right in your own community or neighborhood. There are plenty of people who aren't at all sure about grace and, well, the glory of God. How many people scoff at doing anything for the glory of God these days? But we, as Associate Reformed Presbyterians, we embrace these things. We hold on to them. These are the things that we believe. These are the things that we delight in. We delight in the idea of justification by faith because if there's one thing we know about ourselves, we're sinners. We're never going to earn our way into heaven. We need God to do something. God has reached out to us in grace. We rise from our seats to praise the glory of God. Sometimes, sometimes, even we frozen, chosen Scottish Presbyterians may even raise our hands. Okay, we don't do it very often, but we could do such a thing, and some of you do that, and that's perfectly okay because we're, we're praising the glory of God. We're amazed at the things that God has done. We're praising him for his glory that he shows to us. Now, with all that long introduction in mind, let's turn to our scripture passage that I read for you today to see what they say about these ideas. As you think about Philippians chapter 3 that we read at the beginning here, did you notice how all of those solas are laid out very carefully for you one by one in the text? Did you notice that? Nobody is nodding yes, so I'm going to say, oh, okay. Well, let's work our way through those verses then. Remember where Paul is when he writes Philippians. He's in jail. He's in probably Rome. That's the, the majority vote. That's where he is. And he's writing this letter about the year 60 AD. And remember, this is an aside, but I always like to remind people of it. Paul didn't actually put pen to papyrus when he wrote his letters, except to sign them. The the signature at the end is his. But what he would do, Paul would preach these letters. He walks back and forth as he's speaking. You can imagine this in your mind. And as being led by the Spirit of God, he's pouring out all the things that are in his mind to this congregation. And so Paul begins a sentence and he forgets that he's doing it and he gives another sentence and he throws an idea out and he throws something out and he's walking back and forth. He's got thoughts and emotions racing and you can imagine he's speaking faster and faster in this passage. You can, you can imagine that, all right, as, as, as we read through it. And you can see how he speaks, he corrects himself. He does that, for example, in 1 Corinthians where he says, 
I baptize some of you. I don't know. Maybe some more of you. And he, and he moves on because that's not really the point. And the scribe is furiously writing all of this stuff down as Paul is going through it. And I think that you should always read Paul's letters out loud because he, he's preaching these letters to you. You read them out loud. You, you hear the sounds and the cadence of it. So here's Paul. He, he's imagining himself. He's describing himself as a man who has been living in a particular way. That's the first part of the passage. He's been living in a particular way. And then almost in mid-stride, he turns 180 degrees, and he goes in a completely different direction, and he is jubilant over that. He's so excited. What Paul does is he tells this story in abbreviated and passionate terms. He uses a single word three times that really is the outline of this passage. In English, it's hard to notice that because of the way that we translate things. Twice in this passage, it's translated as pursue. Once, it's translated as persecute. Remember those P words, and it's the same word in Greek. In one, it's a negative In the other two, it's a positive. Paul begins by telling us how he had persecuted the church. He had been terrible. He was ripping the place up. It was a behavior that was consistent, at least in his mind, with his exemplary life as a Jew. As best he could, he had lived a life of utter devotion to God within the givens of his birth. He had extended that by his eagerness to do the best that he could. Then comes this turn, this sharp turn in his life. Now he pursues Christ. Where before he had persecuted the church, now he pursues Christ. And it's the same word in Greek. The eagerness which which he had embraced his ethnic heritage became the same eagerness which now he uses to embrace Christ. Paul writes like a man in love. He's desperately longing to have the joy of a full union with Christ. Listen to the language. Paul says that he wants to know Christ Jesus, who's Paul's Lord. Paul's the servant, or even you can say the slave. He wants to be found, he says, in him to such an extent that he shares Christ's union with God the Father. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to have fellowship in sharing Christ's death and sufferings. He wants to be like him in death so that he might share his resurrection life. As he tries to express the longing that he has for this future union with Christ and and the ongoing life in Christ, the energy of the passage increases. You can see him just flailing his arms around, walking faster and faster as he speaks. This longing makes the past and everything in the past, he says, that's unimportant. That's something that I can discard. There's kind of an echo here of the longing together of young lovers who leave behind family to become one flesh. 
This was a major theme for the Puritan writers. They loved the Song of Solomon and how that book is all about the Christian with Jesus. This delight, this glorying in God, this sense of the wonder of Jesus. Now Paul acknowledges that he is not already fully alive in that union, but he has already been made Christ's own. In verse 14, he pursues, there's that word again, he pursues what he has. He yearns for it more than he can describe. He calls it an upward call, a call which continues to summon Paul to greater and greater joy and love for Jesus, overflowing with knowledge and insight. So with all of this longing and energy, Paul shows the Philippians what it looks like to share among themselves the mind of Christ, which he had preached on in in chapter 2. He disregards all of the values of the past, and in his longing for the fullness that lies ahead, he imitates Christ as he does in the great hymn of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He shows the Philippians, he shows the people of Opelousas, Louisiana, a way to set aside the things that were behind. Nothing on earth, including Paul's imprisonment, can distract him from the new and joyful pursuit of life in God by being Christ's own. Powerful stuff. Perhaps the joy and the hope of falling in love is the best we can do to come near to the emotion in this passage. If you remember back, those of you who are adults, if your kids just, whatever. Remember back to when you first fell in love. Think of, of the emotions that you had. Think of the emotion in this passage. Because whenever you fall in love, you've got, you, just, you just want to hear their voice, right? You just want to be with them. Sometimes people miss college classes to be with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. No way, apparently. So we have this experience you know, you just, you just want to be with them. You want to hold their hand. You just, can you talk to them? Can you share a meal with them? I know people that would call one another on the phone and fall asleep holding the phone. We didn't do that in my day because when we were in college, the only phone was in the middle of the dorm hallway. That shows you how old that I am. But there's whew, this excitement. That's what Paul has here. Parents, you fall in love with your newborn. Right? When you have a baby, you see that baby and you do, and your whole life changes. Everything you did before, no, that's gone, especially sleep. You're not going to do that again for a while. But you've you got this delight in this child and, and you, you count all their toes and their fingers and you look in their eyes and you, and you just, that's the way that Paul is with Jesus. When you're a parent, you give away what you had before. You've got this new relationship with this child and the delight of all of that. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. That's the delight of the Christian with Christ, of being with him. This passage is so powerful that no no matter how many times I preach it, and over the past 40 years of being a pastor, I have preached it several different times, it always knocks my socks off. If we think of a sermon as a dry, boring lecture, 
then we have missed the emotion that Paul gives for us here. We've missed the delight that the apostle has in Jesus. We've missed the point of what Paul's talking about to the Philippians. If we think that the theology of the Reformation, justification by faith, by grace, glory of God, if we think that, we've missed the point. I know when I sit and listen to a lecture on the covenants, I always think to myself, I wish this were interesting, okay? But it's not for me. I know the covenants are really important. It's not that the lecturer was part of it. But I think about the covenants. Here's how God works. And then I look around the average American and think, they have no idea what the Bible's talking about here. It's no wonder we do all these strange things. But God, he makes these covenants and, he's, and, he's, and he explains and he shows you what's going on so that you're not surprised when Jesus shows up and you're in love. And, and he says, I have this covenant with you. I'm going to do this thing. Paul had started out with, believe it or not, seven things that he had before, the number of perfection in the Bible, seven advantages in life, which he lists for us in this passage. He thought that he was moving in this wonderful direction and persecuting the church because he'd been circumcised correctly. He was a member of the people of Israel. He had it all. And then he met Christ, and he realized that he had to throw all of his understanding away. Instead of focusing on what he had, what he had done, what he had created, he now knew that what he needed was Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. He goes back and he looks at scripture alone. He says, I didn't see what was all there before. And he says, everything else is rubbish in the ESV. That's a nice word. But that's not what Paul really says. Paul uses a word you can't use in church because he says, that stuff that I was before, it was terrible. The King James Version calls it dung. It's poo. Everything other than knowing Christ alone by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, as he's revealed in the scriptures alone, everything other than that is just trash. That's really a change of life. There's where God gets hold of him. Let me go back over these verses again and look at how many ways Paul embraces Christ. Going back in here, he's describing all the things here. But he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in it. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. And then he lists all the things that he had that were wonderful. But whatever I had, I counted for loss for the sake of of Christ. In fact, I count everything as lost. It doesn't matter to him whether he's in jail or anything else or whatever is going on because I want to gain Christ. Christ alone is the one thing that he wants. I want to be found in him. Not my righteousness, but his righteousness. I want a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God. I want something that's far beyond what I can do. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Imagine 
what Paul is saying there, becoming like him. And he says, oh, this is just wonderful stuff. I press on to make it my own. Hard to imagine with Paul going over that. And he says, I do all of this by faith. And grace is summed up for us in verse 12 when he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ has reached out and gotten hold of him, and he says, that's what I want. I want to be with him. This passage splendidly shows us how eagerly faith takes up the call of God as we know it in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote these words to strengthen and encourage a community that he loved. Christ alone turned the ancient world upside down. When this truth washed over Martin Luther, and we always think of the book of Romans with Martin Luther, and we read that this morning, and that's great, but that's not the only place that teaches this. When it washed over Martin Luther and then the hundreds of thousands of people in the mighty waves of the Reformation, it turned the world upside down again. It has been the motivation from that time until now and Lord willing, to the end of the world for the Reformed and Presbyterian faith. These five solas, even though they were only put together as a a package, are powerful as God reaches down to you and to me, calling us to know Christ, calling us to know the power of his resurrection, to have a righteousness that comes from God by faith and brings glory to God alone. You don't have to be perfect which is a good thing because we all admit we're not perfect, but you do need to be in Christ. So may each of us seek that kind of faith. If you you feel like you don't have it, ask God for faith. He's the one that gives us faith. Look for that faith in Christ. May we find that, that joy in Christ that moves the apostle to the soaring heights of joy in this passage. That's what the Reformation is all about. That's what the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church is about. That's what Hope ARP Church is about. This glory in God, a joy, an excitement, a life in him. So let me close the sermon this morning by asking, will you seek that? Will you seek that in him today and every day? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, it's an amazing thing to think about what it means to be in Christ, that these things are alive, that they, they take hold of us, they, they pull us up to you. And Lord, that they come from you, that you give to us faith by your grace because you, you simply love us. Help us, Lord, to understand that, to embrace it, to have it bring joy to our lives. And help us, Lord, to show that joy to others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.